0: Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel podcast. There's so much to talk about this week. And as we begin to travel domestically and we rekindle our love affair with the Great American Road Trip, I talk with Matthew Crawford, the author of a new book called Why We Drive. And we go deep into an old American passion. Then it's over to Sweden in my chat with journalist Doug Lansky and his report from his home for the last 16 years. Stockholm, which is now a COVID-19 hotspot. And then, my conversation with Arnie Weissman, Editor-in-Chief of Travel Weekly, on what the cruise lines may actually do to redesign the cruise experience, and perhaps an outcome of that process that might just surprise you. First up, a look at why we drive with Matthew Crawford. When I was about 16 years old, all I wanted, and I mean all I wanted, was a car. Uh, You know, I wasn't alone in that quest. By the way, I didn't get one, but I wanted one, and why did I want one? Because of what it symbolized to me. It symbolized independence. It symbolized freedom, the opportunity to literally, you know, develop, discover new horizons, uh, new worlds, or brave new worlds. And uh, I got one sooner or later uh, when I was like a junior in college. It was a hand-me-down. It was our 1961 Chevrolet station wagon, which was rusted so badly, the seats actually fell out, but that's another story, but I drove it. I drove it all over the country. And isn't it interesting through the, you know, the brave new world of unintended consequences that 2020 has become the unexpected summer of the great American road trip once again. And we're joined now by someone who just did a really great book about this. Talk about perfect timing for him. The name of the book, Why We Drive, and the author, Matthew Crawford. How are you, sir?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show, Peter.
0: Yeah. So, you know, when you hear about the, you know, Why We Drive, obviously there's a philosophy behind that, and so much of that is in your book. But isn't it interesting that your book comes out coinciding, literally, with sort of like a rekindled love affair with the road?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, I had a real nice drive myself recently down Highway 1 on the California coast. Uh, just spectacular. And normally it'd be choked with tourists, but it was just about empty. So it's a, it's a good time to get out and rediscover those iconic roads because they've been pretty open.
0: But, you know, driving, just the, just the concept of driving in a road trip is so much a part of the American culture and fabric
2: yeah and I think even maybe before we had cars, in a sense, it was this idea of lighting out for the territories, you know, getting out uh, away from the crowded uh, eastern seaboard and the cities, and we've always had this idea of the frontier, and I think it's still the case that you can, uh, especially if you get off the interstate and onto the uh, the little county roads, it's like you're discovering the country again.
0: Because you know it's, it's funny. It's funny because you mentioned those county roads, I'm reminded of another book I read about the great American road trip. It must be at least 25 years old now, called Blue Highways. It was it was uh, written by uh, his, I love his name, William Least, least Eat Eat Moon. Moon yeah. yeah. And what he did was the reason why I called it Blue Highways, it's on the old Rand McNally road atlases, all those county roads that you were talking about, Matthew, were were colored blue. So he stayed off the interstate, and he literally discovered America.
2: Yeah, you know, when you're on the interstate, all those establishments really sprang up just to service people who are passing through. So, um, you know, there's a kind of sameness to it all. But once you get off the interstate, you know, you're passing through real communities, and you, you kind of rediscover the fact that this country is really very diverse and varied and from region to region. It's kind of a, a nice nice thing to rediscover once in a while.
0: And, of course, these days, people are taking to the road because it, it basically fulfills their at least short-term need for trying to be socially distanced.
2: Yeah, and also it's a good way to get away from your family. <laughs> if <you're laughs> not, you've been cooped up in the same house for months, I find times uh, I'll go out and just sit in my car in the driveway just to get a little uh, private headspace.
0: I get it. And, of course one of the incarnations of that is not just the family sedan or even the SUV, but the RV. Uh, right now, recreational vehicle sales are spiking. It's actually difficult in many cities to rent one because they're so popular. Mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of like self-contained quarantine mobiles, and the entire extended family gets to go. And they don't have to stop for for, uh, for restaurants or hotels. They're just stopping for groceries and gas.
2: Yeah, and I imagine there's Sort of an added attraction to getting out of the cities right now, given all the chaos we've been seeing. So, um, yeah, being out, uh, being out in the, out in the territories, as they say, has got fresh appeal. I think.
0: Well, let's let's do a little comparison driving here. I'm not talking about comparing the cars or their or their capabilities, but the, the just the the theory of it all. I understand that you know that's a famous Dwight Eisenhower quote, right? He said. America didn't build the interstate highway system the interstate highway system built America and you can say that about the trains you could say it about the Tulane County highways as well Uh, So that's been ingrained in us But are we do are we driving any differently now?
2: well, you know, we have on the horizon the, the driverless cars and it's interesting, this is really, uh, it's not a response to consumer demand. When you when you poll people, they don't trust this stuff. And most people, when they're polled, actually like to drive and don't want to give it up. So it's very much a top-down project that's kind of being pushed upon us. And you have to wonder if the main point is really to kind of bring your commute into the whole logic of uh collecting data and surveillance and all that and then marketing stuff to you from based on what they've learned from your, your travels through the world. So, uh, you know, whether that's really going to occur, that whole transformation is hard to say. But we, what we do know is that for driverless cars and human drivers to share the road together, is not that does not look like it's going to work out very well.
0: I'm with you. I'm with you I mean look i'm I'm a control freak i you know I can't see myself and maybe because I've been conditioned this way, but I can't see myself sitting behind no wheel and just like reading a book when That's I'm awful. the only guy when I'm the only guy in the car, you know,
2: yeah, it's a little spooky, um this idea that you're gonna depend on these sort of unseen forces, and uh you know when I started writing this. Why We Drive, and part of it was because of this, this incident I heard about where this Google car, self-driving car, came up on an intersection, and it was a four-way stop. And it, it came to a complete stop and waited for the other cars to do the same before going through. But of course, that's not what people do, right? They, they maybe just roll through. Um, maybe one person waves the other through. They make eye contact. There's a whole kind of body language of how to, uh, you know, figure it out on the fly. It's a little bit improvisational. But And so the Google car just got paralyzed, didn't know what to do. And what the chief engineer said, I thought was interesting, he said that what he'd learned is that human beings need to be less idiotic, by which he meant they need to behave more like robots. Um, so it was just completely invisible to him, the fact that there's a kind of social intelligence that's playing out at that intersection, and it works just fine for the most part.
0: Except, I'll give you—I'll give you a for instance, because I did a piece a couple of years ago for CBS, where we went to MIT and we went uh, uh, into in Pennsylvania where they were doing a lot of the university research on the driverless cars. And I went out on a test track with the uh, with the engineers, and we learned something interesting there. I'll give you the for instance: you're driving down a regular city street, and there's a car double parked in front of you where the woman's getting out or the man's getting out and they're opening the back door to take out their groceries. Mm -hmm. Now, what would you do? What I would do, obviously you slow to a stop. You see if there's any traffic coming in the other direction. And if there's not, you basically go around them. Mm -hmm. The driverless car doesn't do that. It's, it just sits behind the other car because it's already programmed not to cross a yellow line or not to cross a white line. And when we come back, I'm gonna talk about those double lines and what we call the emotional choice that we have to make every day when we drive that I'm not so sure these these uh, driverless cars can actually be programmed to do. Now having said that, watch me be proven wrong. The concept of emotional choi- choice of a machine and what, they, what the engineers presented to me, which by the way, I didn't have an answer, so I'll see if you have an answer or if the car might have an answer, is let's ratchet that example up a little further where you're driving down the road in your driverless car, and all of a sudden, coming towards you is a you know, 18-wheeler, and he's coming right at you, and you have to make a decision. Well, if you go to the right, there's a woman with a baby stroller. If you go to the left, there's a soccer mom with her kids in the SUV. What do you do? Yeah,
2: yeah. and just to back up a little, it's just the idea that we can offload or outsource that kind of decision onto a machine is a little bit creepy, and to take your earlier example of a uh, you know, person double-parked and loading groceries, the thing about human beings is that we have common sense where we can encounter an unusual situation and kind of uh, make a judgment call. Yeah. Whereas computers cannot be trained to have common sense. they, You have to anticipate every possible circumstance and program them with that. There was a case of an Uber driverless car um, hit a pedestrian, and after an investigation, we learned that the car had not been programmed to recognize a pedestrian crossing outside of a crosswalk.
0: Whoops. Whoops. Yeah. Now, you know what that means, Matthew? Welcome the attorneys. Yeah. Now, the, 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 in a litigious society such as ours, everybody gets sued then, right? The manufacturer, the engineers, the guy who sold you the car— I mean, so the liability concept here is staggering. Now, we're, we're looking at something right now in the aviation industry where they're trying to develop a pilotless plane, which scares the you know what out of most people. Um, and what are they thinking of doing first to sort of alleviate our fear? Don't make it a passenger plane. Make it a cargo plane. So aren't we seeing the same thing now with the driverless car where we've already developed driverless trucks?
2: Yeah, and just to step back once again, just to note the perversity of um, trying to take the human element out of every human activity, because in fact, we're pretty good at doing things like driving cars. And to get machines to do it anywhere near as well, you have to have basically a rolling supercomputer on wheels. I mean, talk about a massive expenditure of money to solve a non-problem. That's really... That's the case I explore in the book is making a case for human competence and also for um, you know the fact that when we solve problems together, as one does at a kind of urban intersection where we just work it out on the fly, I think that's an important element of the democratic personality, just solving problems without the supervision of a bureaucracy or some technology that does everything for us.
0: And if I had to guess, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, we are going to see. I, I'm I'm convinced we are going to see at least one incarnation of a driverless car uh, introduced in the next five years. But my guess is you'll see it in retirement home villages, over a closed course. You know, it'll it'll be able to take you to the grocery store, or the post office. It'll be able to take you to the drive-in or to the or the drive-through. Um, and back again, it's not, they won't let it out of the compound.
2: Well, what you're describing sounds kind of like a trolley or a train.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Um, because people still, still need to be feel safe about it. And obviously there'll be a governor on it in terms of speed. I mean, I think that's the first way they're going to do it.
2: Yeah. And so you could, you could point to driverless cars as being part of this wider, um, push for automation, and there's a pattern here, which was that um, activities that demand skill and competence give way to something where you're rendered into a passive-dependent sort of creature, and it, it usually goes un, under the banner of safety and convenience. And if you go far enough down that road, I think the whole world starts to look like a one big assisted living facility. <laughs>
0: I hope I'm a few years away from that. But given the choices that we have, we still are pretty much control freaks, aren't we? Well,
2: it's interesting. I think uh, there's this mentality, I actually call it the ideology of safetyism, because there's this feedback loop wherein the safer we become, uh, the more intolerable any remaining risk appears. It's very strange. And then, yeah, I think that... Um, seeking to control every variable goes along with that as though, um, you know, every risk has to be eliminated. And my sense is that risk is inherently bound up with some important aspects of being human. And that's why I take these excursions to different motorsport scenes and uh, automotive subcultures where um, people are, you know, really hanging it out on the edge and uh, it's exhilarating.
0: Well, anytime you eliminate risk, beware the world of unintended consequences.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I think one of those consequences is a kind of erosion of the human spirit.
0: So, Matthew, you've been driving a car probably since you were 17, 18, right?
2: It's funny. You know, I, I started working at a Porsche shop when I was 15 before I even had a driver's license.
0: Oh, you elitist. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I could, of course, I couldn't afford a Porsche, so I got a, a 1963 VW Bug, which is sort of the poor man's Porsche. And, uh, you know, for the next few years, I completely tore that thing down and rebuilt it and been a gearhead ever since.
0: Listen, the most exciting and fun car I ever had was, I, and the only car that I ever bought new for many, many years, was a 1971 VW Bus. Ah. And it was called Sierra Yellow. It was actually orange. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the the little small air-cooled engine in the back. And uh, that took me all across the country. I had the best time. And it was such an iconic car. I didn't know it at the time. That five years later when I sold it, I sold it for more money than I paid for it. That's never happened before. It'll Mm -hmm. never happen again.
2: (laughs) Well, if you still had that thing now, you'd be shocked at what they're worth. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I know. You know what I saw parked on the street in New York the other day? First of all, I was amazed that it was actually parked on the street and not garaged, a 1964
2: Carmen Ghia. Oh, well, my daily driver is a 1970 Carmen Ghia.
0: <laughs> you and had the air-cooled engine in the back, too.
2: Oh, yeah, and it's all dirty and a uh, little bit, you know, chipped paint and all that. So it's not a trailer queen, for sure. It's a, it's a daily
0: driver. So here's my big question of the day. In the summer of the Great American Road Trip 2020, what do you think we're going to learn from this summer? Because most people didn't plan on it this way. Most people plan to get on a plane and go somewhere. Now they're driving.
2: Yeah. Well, one thing I tend to be reminded of when I <clears throat> take a road trip is uh, I find I've, I'm often not tuning in to all the usual news sources that kind of punctuate my day otherwise. And it's just great to get away from the chatter and the, you know, the sort of the national conversation, which is always, I mean, especially now, so hysterical. And you go out into the uh, into the country and you realize, well, maybe everything's okay and things are kind of calm. And maybe if I just tune out all that noise, I'll, I'll be a little bit happier.
0: So we're back to the idea that it's your freedom.
2: I think so. It's It's freedom. And I think to drive is, you know, it takes skill. And I think it's to exercise your skill at being free, and I suspect that's why some of us really like to drive.
0: And then, of course, there's the issue of common ground because when you're on the road and you pull up to places, again, off the major interstates, you're talking like the two-lane county roads. You're going to discover some amazing cars that have been like one owners, you know, but they may be 45 years old, and you got you can't wait to talk to the owner.
2: Yeah. And when you when you take off on a you know, roaming on a road trip, talk about not having complete control. You don't know what you're going to encounter, and you kind of open yourself to um, you know different kinds of people that you maybe wouldn't have had in your circle otherwise. Um, it's a it's a kind of faith I think in the, in the basic hos Fatality of the world that you're throwing yourself into it with hope and and usually it goes. Well, sometimes you you break down you got to ask people for help and um,
0: and That's I where think, the conversation starts
2: exactly. Yeah,
0: well, I'll tell you a funny story and I, I have to tell you Matthew. I can't make this one up I got a chance to drive cross country three different times in my life on in three different kinds of cars and between California and New York and in all three cases my car broke down in Flagstaff, Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And you know what? By the second time, people are going, you again? <laughs> That's funny. Because we developed, we developed a conversation, we developed a friendship, because, you know, there's an old saying, you know, what's the one thing the ratchet do if he's ever caught in the trap, right? Eat the cheese. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> so if the car's broken down... You got to talk to people. And of course I'm I'm a curious guy, so I do. But I mean it was you can't make this up. Three separate times. So once
2: I went, I went coasted uh, down all the way from the the top of the, the Rockies, I think it's the what is it? The Eisenhower Pass or Hoover Pass oh yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, all the way down to Utah. It's all downhill, which was good because I was burning about 1 quart of oil every 100 miles. <laughs> just as Little brown cloud behind me, and then finally got down to uh, down to Utah and, and uh, had to change an oil pump there in the parking lot <laughs> of a of a grocery store.
0: My thanks to Matthew. Next up, my chat with journalist Doug Lansky with an update on COVID-19 life. In Sweden, our next guest, one of our regulars, I see him every time I go overseas, and that's where he is right now, where he lives in in Stockholm. Our good pal, Doug Lansky. How are you, Doug?
3: Hey, I'm doing great. Good to hear from you.
0: Now, the last time I talked to you, it was basically at the start of the crazy pandemic, and Sweden was distinguishing itself by saying, "We believe in herd immunity, so we're not going to shut down. It's going to be business as usual. And, uh, tell me what happened.
3: Well, a lot of people died, but most of those, the vast, vast majority were in old age homes of people who were very susceptible. Um, and that is an admitted failure on the part of the health uh, professionals. Um, and they've come out and, and admitted as much, but there's been no lockdown here. Restaurants have been open. It's been hard the whole time through. It's been hard to get into the most popular restaurant still, um, I don't even know anybody who owns a mask. Um, I'm so, I'm shocked by that, to be honest. Like, especially if I go to a gardening shop, and I see like these eighty year olds walking around with uh, you know walkers, and I'm they don't have master gloves on, and I'm thinking like, you know, what do they tell their grandkids? You know, and grandma when they go, grandma, how did grandpa die? And they're like, well, you know, he really needed a cactus. I mean, I don't I don't get it, to <laughs> be honest. But uh, but there's a lot of it that I like all the medical health professionals I know, and I hang out with a lot of doctors, they all think that Sweden did the right thing because they're kind of looking at other things besides the death statistic. And by the way, it's down to close to zero deaths a day now. Um, and I know it's dropped a lot in many places, uh, but the actual uh, death count has dropped close to zero. And uh, they're also looking at other factors like, Domestic violence and people who weren't going in to get their mammograms because they were scared and all. There's a whole range of kind of a long tail effect of this, as you know, from uh, food shortages and other things they were, you know, were able to avoid. in the economy, of course. So they're kind of looking at the bigger picture. Um, and to be honest, um, it's not terribly different from you know what the U.S. president has been advocating. They're just doing it with a, a more nuanced rationale and kind of a larger game plan um but yeah this experiment if you ask the professionals here they seem to be thinking it's working
0: now you've lived there how many years now
3: i've been here about 16 years
0: and you're still an american citizen
3: i have dual citizenship now by the way i uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when, uh when the most recent U.S. president became president, I decided that it might not be a bad idea to also get a Swedish passport, just in case.
0: Well, there are a lot of people out there who would like that passport, but for other reasons as well. But now, having said yeah. that, uh, are you free to travel within the European Union? Uh,
3: there are a lot of places that don't really want the Swedes to come <laughs> right now. Uh, one of the few places that my friends are looking around, and they're trying to go someplace over the summer, some of them are going to Italy or Croatia. Those seem to be the two spots that Swedes are looking at going to. But what we're looking in, around and seeing is that a lot of people want to come here uh, because of the kind of the freedoms. And so they're saying, you know what, everyone's coming here. Why don't we just stay here and enjoy it? So a lot of my <laughs> friends who were thinking of traveling are just staying here.
0: But you have sort of like a double negative thing going on because the EU doesn't want Americans and they don't want Swedes. So you struck out.
3: <laughs> yeah, they, we did and we didn't. I mean, at the same time, we maybe struck out. But I mean, I'm I'm talking to you right now from a beer garden. It's packed with people. I'm looking at about 200 people. I don't see anyone wearing master gloves. People are playing ping pong outside. We're sitting outside enjoying the late evening sun. Um and that kind of freedom has been going on this whole time. And I think they really appreciate that aspect you, of it.
0: Doug, are you wearing a mask?
3: I am not. I don't, I don't even own one. Uh, I would, If I did, I'd be the only person in my neighborhood who did.
0: So you're, you've made the choice, as have so many, to, to sort of live dangerously.
3: Well, sort of. I mean, I was in the Alps in Italy, like, right when all this broke out. And I actually got the coronavirus right up front and then tested positive for antibodies. So uh, I I felt once you do that, you have like a little bit of, feel like you have superpowers uh, in a way. <laughs> I mean, we don't know really how long that's going to last or how effective it is, But but it seems to be better to have the antibodies than to not.
0: And, you know, this open-air experiment in Sweden, it did result in over 5,400 deaths, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look again, if you look at the total deaths per population, it does not look good. Um, but the vast majority of those are like 75 year old and up and living in a you know senior living arrangements where they did not take proper precautions. And now that sadly that those lives were lost uh, and they learned a tough lesson, the death rate has dropped nation or countrywide to close to zero. So, uh, yeah, there's, so like, the, there's, there's a handful a day.
0: So in the in the real challenge and conflict of which one do you go for, the economy or health, uh, Sweden chose economy. Well,
3: that, that and, again, also there's things like domestic abuse and there's other health issues. I mean, for example, when a lot of older people and, and not older people were coming, decided you know not to go into the hospital for fear of corona when they were going to get biopsies or, or mammograms. And then they just let it ride, and a couple of months goes by. When they, if, if some of those people do come in, and it turns out they have cancer, then that those you know then there's a whole other range of deaths that can occur. So, I mean, they looked at a kind of a wider picture of the fallout from this, not just the immediate deaths from corona. Um, I don't know if that's all that went into their decision making, but it seems to it seems
0: that way. So, for anybody listening to this show, perhaps in New York or Chicago or L.A. And they want to come to Sweden now. Can they go?
3: I believe the answer is yes. I mean, there's tourists walking around all over the place. So I I didn't check the latest on if they're allowing people from the U.S., but my guess is I would say yes.
0: How many of your American friends have called you and said, hey, Doug, can I come visit?
3: A lot. Actually, a lot. You'd be surprised. Well, they were, you know, the first thing, how dangerous does it feel? How dangerous is it? And... You know, once they kind of hear the base statistic that that it's really you know if you're if you're under seventy five, your chances are extremely good. Of uh, you know, they want to come. They're kind of missing that freedom of walking around mask free and going to restaurants and bars and all that. And again, almost all my friends and neighbors here have already had Corona and tested positive for
0: antibodies. Now, both you and I travel a lot. I've been in New York now for 16 and a half weeks, haven't gone anywhere. Uh, have you traveled at all?
3: I haven't been traveling, no. Um, I could have. Uh, I just, I don't know. It was sort of that same feeling. I was talking to friends around Europe, and there was no other place I'd rather be. I don't want to travel somewhere where I have to put on a mask and not be able to go out. Uh, I was, I've just been enjoying the freedoms. It's been the opposite. People want to come here instead.
0: Of course, the, the real challenge over and above the coronavirus is, is basically affording Stockholm, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Outside of Stockholm, everyone, all the people outside of Stockholm are afraid to come here because Stockholm is by far sort of like New York City. It's been the ground zero of the outbreak. Um, but within Stockholm, everyone's walking around like nothing's ever happened.
0: Thanks, Doug. One of our regulars on our radio show, as well as our PBS travel show called The Travel Detective, is Travel Weekly Editor-in-Chief Arnie Weissman. He talks to me about the latest travel news and some interesting, perhaps surprising developments in the grounded cruise ship industry. One other thing I want to talk about before introducing one of our regulars is right now, the airline executives, the senior airline executives met with the Vice President Pence uh, a couple of days ago, and what were they lobbying for? They don't want to spend the money to do the health checks or temperature checks at uh, at the airports. They want the TSA to do it. And uh, for for obvious reasons, they don't want to spend the money and they don't have the manpower. They're, they're too busy furloughing people, if you heard what I said in the last segment. Uh, so the TSA may actually be forced to perform those temperature checks at the security checkpoints, but the security guys at the TSA even are saying themselves, these, these temperature checks are not very useful because people can spread the virus without having a fever or, People who have a fever don't necessarily have COVID-19, and you're asking people to come to the airport first to get your temperature taken before the airlines are even willing to give them a refund if they have a high fever. How dumb is that? Well, we'll talk about that and a few other things, including some interesting developments in the cruise industry with our next guest. He's the editor-in-chief of Travel Weekly, Arnie Weissman. How are you, Arnie?
4: Good, Peter. How are you doing?
0: I mean what's your take on the tsa doing temperature checks
4: well i mean as you just mentioned the the one can be very contagious and have and be completely asymptomatic for uh, i believe it's 48 hours before you uh show any symptoms like a fever so you know there's the question of whether you whether that does any good i mean i suppose gives me a small degree of comfort to know that the person sitting uh, either right next to me or if I'm lucky with it on the other side of a block, middle seat uh, that they do not have a fever. Uh, so I mean it's, it's I think it's an incremental benefit but I also think that you know there's you, you what we're talking about throughout the industry is minimizing degrees of risk. So you know I guess better than not but problematic, nonetheless, and certainly no guarantee. If it gives a false sense of security, then it's probably uh, worse than than not doing it at all.
0: I mean, I remember after 9-11, we used to say, you know, the TSA was sort of like security theater. It made people who didn't fly very often feel better. Um, but now we have what, temperature theater? Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's the same, by the way,
4: Disney announced its uh, plans for reopening, and uh, it's actually already for, you know, frequent uh, visitors. uh, got a preview of it last week, and it's uh, similar. If you have a fever, they take you to a secondary screening where if you, after filling out questionnaires and talking, your whole party won't be able to get in if one of you has a fever. Uh, no, you know, what hap-
0: you know what happens if you have a fever? They put you in a special room with Goofy.
4: <laughs> right. Come on. Or, or, no, no, they put you on It's a Small World and lock the door. You just have to go through it again and again and no, again. No, no, you,
0: you know what got me? I have to tell you this. I'm not, guys, I am not making this up. When they opened up the theme parks in Japan, there is now a rule that you could not scream on the roller coaster.
4: Oh, you have to scream in your heart, as I recall.
0: Yes! That's that's what they say.
4: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they do have... And the one thing that Disney does have some experience is that they opened uh, Shanghai already. It's been open, actually, for quite a while. So that they have had a chance to test some things out, see what works, see what doesn't work. They've shut down the really big, like, the fireworks at night, those sorts of shows. The parade. Uh, The parade, although they will have individual cars going down the streets that will have, like, there'll be a princess parade with a float and a horse, and, you know, the, uh, there's, there's a villain's uh, car that goes through, you know, so they're, and, but they're, they're not going to do the character meets per se. The characters are going to be up on balconies kind of waving down, and they say there's going to be some interaction between them. They've tried to make everything touchless. Uh, you know, down to the menus, the order. Uh, if you can, if you have the phone and you understand how to use a QR code and things like that, you can get the menu, do your ordering, and it's brought to you. They, there's no more self-service on fountain drinks. You know, the type of things that that are common sense, minimizing contact as much as possible.
0: And of course, when they do that small parade, just hope the princess is not glowing in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> or coughing, <laughs> so. and you can't and you can't hug Mickey. Not No. 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 no, no can't do it. Can't do it. No. All right. Let's no, shift no gears more, for a no, second. No
4: more of those.
0: Let's shift gears for a second because we're now in July, and if you've been following this, you know that the Centers for Disease Control has a no sale order on all U.S. based cruise lines that are carrying passengers. I think above two hundred and fifty people, and that no sale order uh, basically extends until. Uh, Uh, july 24th there's every reason that i have to believe that the cdc is going to extend that order uh to make it all the way through october the cruise lines have already announced they tried to preempt that by saying we're volunteering not to do any sailing until september 15th Uh, but for all intents and purposes it's my going to be my guess and something tells you you're going to agree to agree with me that for the rest of this year we're not going to be doing a lot of cruising
4: not a lot. Uh, I actually, uh, you know, Virgin Voyages, uh, Virgin, uh, Richard Branson's cruise brand, uh, is supposed to start sailing in October. Uh, I actually signed up for mid-December, which is, I figured, would have the best chance at uh, any time in the year to go ahead and, you know, see what that product is all about. Um, but I'm I'm certainly not 100% sure it's going to go uh, there. It so much depends on a number, a chain of things happening. Uh, CDC is first. CDC is controlling the game. And what's interesting is the cruise lines and the European health authorities worked hand in hand and came up with a number of recommendations. They they were they stopped short of mandating. And one of the more interesting recommendations. Was that they would segregate? They should segregate, Think about segregating people by age, including crew. So you have, let's say, people over sixty-five served by crew over sixty-five on one part of the ship. You have young people on another part of the ship. Uh, the American <laughs> oh, cruise lines
0: I'm are laughing. not. Uh, wait, wait, I'm happen. laughing yeah. about this.
4: Yeah, that's yeah. not going to work. No, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And and you know the. Intergenerational cruising has given cruise a huge boost. It's kind of the last things the cruise lines would actually want to implement, anyway. Um, but the, and, and most of the other things were uh, the types of things you would expect. That was the only one that really struck me as uh, an original concept. Let's put it that way.
0: I, I can just see the announcement from the captain. Will all the really old people go to the port side? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah.
4: Well, one thing that actually struck me that you know that what, what's happening though that's interesting is like any industry under real duress, it's either innovate or collapse. And the cruise lines were really, I think you, you, they was worried that collapse was, it was a real possibility. I mean, when they had to raise money to stay liquid through an extended period when they wouldn't be having any revenue whatsoever, The the investments that they took, the the money they borrowed, came at quite a cost. Uh,
0: An interesting development earlier this week, Arnie, that we you and I both reported on, uh, where two rival cruise lines actually did the unthinkable: they partnered. That would be Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Lines. They didn't like financially partner, but they got together on one particular project that was obviously near and dear to them, and that is how do we get through this mess and come up with protocols and designs and, uh, you know, hygiene procedures that are really going to work. Tell me about that.
4: Yeah, so it's, it's very interesting, uh, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian, which are the number two and three largest cruise lines, uh, each were on their own developing panels to, of experts to try and figure out how to get going again. And uh, the CDC is holding the the uh, cruise lines at arm's length. I think the CDC felt it got a bit burned uh, in the in the first because of all the things that were going on with cruise ships, and it was just you know a uh, uh, bad reputational damage let's see was going in let's say was going in absolutely every direction cruise line CDC everybody so the, the CDC is is apparently working without close cooperation with the cruise lines although the cruise lines would certainly be willing to do it so they have put together Norwegian and Royal found out that they were each putting together panels decided to pool uh, their resources and have one blue ribbon panel it's interesting it's co-chaired by dr. Scott Gottlieb the former uh, FDA Commissioner and um, uh, Levitt, um, Mark Michael Levitt, the former governor of Utah and also former Secretary of Health and Human Services, and they have put together this panel. It's really an interesting panel. It's got academics, it's got people from the pharmaceutical companies, uh, it's got experts, uh, epidemiologists, and. What they're doing, which is really interesting, is they are breaking down the cruise experience into different working groups so that, for instance, let's say a shore excursion. A shore excursion, cruising is so complex, and then within the complexity, there's so many moving parts in each of the components. So for a shore excursion, the goal would be to be able to run it safely so that nobody picks up a virus while they're on shore and then bring it back onto the ship. That would be a disaster. So they're breaking it all down. And what both these two cruise lines have said is they're going to share whatever they learn with the entire cruise industry, which is smart, because whenever one line has a problem, it gives a black eye to the entire industry. And Scott Gottlieb believes that they're going to be discovering things that are going to be applicable to industries that are completely unrelated. And so what this has the potential for doing is that cruising can go from this coronavirus scapegoat to sort of a pandemic hero. If they do this right and they end up finding all sorts of ways to solve problems to keep people safe, you know, it'll it'll be the, the biggest turnaround since Tylenol, you know, when they when they have that uh you know, exactly. cyanide was was found in the shelves back in the eighties and they did this incredible turnaround that uh, made Tylenol not only safe, but gave Johnson & Johnson this halo effect because they put their values over profit and and things like that. So there's a, there's a chance that cruising can be the shining example of uh, a protective bubble. And Gottlieb even said that it could be safer to be on a ship than on shore.
0: I would presume, Arnie, that... They're going to take or dedicate at least one of these ships in their fleet, if not more, to be sort of floating laboratories uh, in the next couple of months to see what works and what doesn't. And, you know, to take everything to failure, so to speak, to see how it's going to be able to be you know implemented.
4: Yeah. Yeah, this no-sale order may turn out to be uh, kind of a blessing in disguise because whereas airplanes and hotels never stopped operating, I mean, they did shut down. They certainly took planes out of service. They took, you know, a lot of hotels reduced their capacity or closed for a period. They kind of had to keep going, but they're much less complex than a cruise. I mean, a cruise has a hotel, like an airplane that goes through all sorts of regulatory jurisdictions, um, and then plus, it's got these private islands, it's got, uh, it has to staff, or rather house its own, its own crew as well as staff. It doesn't have any support. It can be, you know, out at sea for days without uh, any, anything helping, so it has to carry everything with it. Its, its complexity is what may make it, again, the hero uh, in the end. Because if they can figure out all those things, it's going to have applications somewhere else.
0: And they do have a reservoir of goodwill from their loyal repeat cruisers. Those are the people who are booking trips already for 2021. But we're looking at 23 separate cruise ships. We talked about this on the show last week that are going to leave. Most of them will not be sold. There's no market for them. They may just go to the scrapyards. And, And these are ships that we all know. And many of us have been on them on almost all of them.
4: Yes, and and there, you know, it used to be that there was a big secondary market in the Med, you know, some Greek shipping companies which would just run these ships that would be 20, 30 years old among the islands uh, in the Mediterranean, right. and that that market's kind of saturated, and uh, so yeah, whole classes of ships may be retired.
0: My thanks to Arnie Weissman, to Doug Lansky, and to Matthew Crawford. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. Be sure to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for more information, you can always go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts.